nobody worries about kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Welcome to episode number 63 of the Love That Album podcast. My thanks to you for joining me either via streaming or download or however it is that you've chosen to listen to this episode of the show. If you're a new time listener, welcome. The point of this program is for myself and a guest host to talk about favorite records and very rare occasions records that one of us actually doesn't like. But if you're a returned listener, well, you already know that and thanks very much for following and coming along on the journey as per usual. Now, I did say a guest host. Now, unfortunately, only for the third time in the show's life, I'm not going to be joined by a guest host. My um, guest for this time around, unfortunately, had to pull out due to family circumstances. So I'm basically left with the option of either finding someone else and picking a different record or waiting a week or two. And I thought, you know what? No, I've gone and prepared and I'm here to talk to you this time around about Stevie Wonder's album from 1976, Songs in the Key of Life. There is uh, plenty to discuss about this album, both historically and from a musical perspective. And I have a whole bunch of thoughts and hope that uh, you'll dig on um, those thoughts. So I hope everyone out there is doing well. Uh, I'd like to give uh, some uh, other thanks before I go any further. My big, big thanks to uh, Tim Merrill and Eric Peterson for hosting episode number 62 of Love That Album. I took a little bit of time off from doing the show and they went and recorded a really fine episode. If you haven't caught up with it yet, I urge you to do so. They spoke on episode number, number 62 about uh, a couple of great punk albums, The Dead Boys, Young, Loud and Snotty and they spoke about uh, Killing Jokes' eponymous album from 1980, and I found it incredibly enjoyable and hugely educational for someone like myself who's not exactly a, um, a scholar in punk music. Hey, if you've listened to this show long enough, you know I'm not really a scholar in any type of music, but I tend to know less about punk than I do about a lot of the other genres that I listen to a lot. So uh, my thanks to them for educating me and hopefully educating you listeners out there and hope you enjoyed that episode and they'll be back on the show at uh, some future stage to um, uh, illuminate and educate. Speaking of Eric Reanimator, he actually does show up in this episode with his usual Album I Love segment. For those of you once again who are new to the show, the Album I Love segment is where Eric Reanimator uh, records a segment talking about a favourite album and it only takes him about seven or eight minutes, what normally takes me an hour and a half to do. So he's far more efficient than I am. And this time around, he's going to be talking about an album from the band The Bell Rays, their album, I think from 1998, called Let It Blast. Now, they've actually been to Australia, uh, I think, at least two or three times in the past, and I didn't actually get around to seeing them. Uh, but uh, certainly after listening to Eric's segment, I think I'd like to rectify that if they do make a future trip down here. And I'd urge you to do the same if they play in your neck of the woods because uh, the segment and the music that uh, Eric presents is really, really fantastic. So that'll be coming up uh, very shortly in the program. So basically, I think at this stage, rather than going into you know what I've been listening to and all that sort of thing, let's just talk about the album under consideration for today. As I said, it's Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. Uh, actually, maybe what I'll do is I'll go straight to uh, Eric's segment before delving into that album. I hope that uh, you enjoy the show, and we'll be back shortly with some Stevie Wonder for you. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two, I want two, three, four. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Now it's time for... An album I love with Eric Reanimator. 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 
here and this time we're going to be talking about the rock and soul album Let It Blast by the band The Bell Rays. Bell Rays from Riverside, California and the album was originally released in 1998. This was the first album by The Bell Rays that I heard but not the first song or music from them. In fact, they did a split 7-inch with a band that I was friends with once upon a time called Adam West where each of the bands covered a song by Cream. Bell Rays were also featured on the Fistful of Rock and Roll compilations. And we're a touring machine. I can't count the number of times that I saw them play in either Detroit or Minneapolis, and they always put on a show. What really made them stand out was the singer Lisa's soul and passioned vocals backed with the garage punk MC5 Stooges-inspired high-energy rock and roll of the era. They were doing something that bands like Electric Frankenstein, The Helicopters, or Glucifer were playing with, but those authentic soul vocals were far beyond what, outside of what anyone except possibly the Flaming Sideburns from Helsinki were doing. We'll talk about them at some point, I'm sure. Anyways, let's check out some bell rays. All the things that you say and do of a different kind. All your hopes and your dreams come from a hole in the ground. Well, 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 you say you're black like me, but you don't want me around. No, 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 no. You got a reason to sit inside. Down a hundred million more. You close your eyes. You're changing colors. Some sugar for you, baby. Yeah, you want to borrow some? Don't be shy with me, baby. I'm a monster with a fever. So front woman Lisa Kay, I'm not even going to try and pronounce her last name, is in fact black, and she is the only black member of the band. But it's interesting to see a interracial uh, high-energy rock band in the 90s, and uh, 2000s even. The United States as a culture was very much at a point where music diverted along racial lines, and African-Americans, black people, largely moved towards rap and what passes for R&B and soul, which was really a lot of pop disco garbage. Not say that there's nothing good out there, but for the most part, that's where the music went. And rock and roll, jazz, and other forms were largely taken over by whites, with a good amount of Hispanics actually becoming heavily involved in mainly punk and metal, as well as hip-hop. But... The great thing about the Bell Rays is they were taking what the 70s rock and soul promised and updating it, filtering it through punk, filtering it through alternative, 
filtering it through the knowledge of what garage rock became as far as garage punk. Musically, they are playing with chaos here. They are playing with free jazz. They are playing with that basic rock and roll impulse. Now, if Lisa's voice sounds familiar, I did talk about an album that she guested on, the Simon Stokes album Honky, several episodes back, probably a year, year and a half ago now. But she uh, also recorded with an electronica band called Basement Jacks that I really don't know that much about. I can say this, that every time I've seen them play live, she has gotten out in the audience and gotten into people's faces, taking the music to the people, as it were. I've also seen her spend time with especially young women that come to see them play. And to take the time to let them know that this music is for you, this music has something for you, so please... Come out, be part of it, say what you want, like what you want. I always think of Let It Blast as being one of those great lost high-energy rock albums from that time period, and I hope that more people go out and discover it. The Bell Rays did release several albums since Let It Blast, including Grand Fury, which are worth your time, and they are a little more slick and a little more evolved, but Let It Blast has that initial, not necessarily initial because it wasn't their first album, but that early coming together of all the elements they were mixing into their music. So, we're going to leave now with a little bit more of the Bell Rays, and catch you all later. Thanks very much, Eric, for another wonderful segment of Album I Love. And if you haven't caught up with Eric's separate Love That Album uh, programs, he's been doing, basically alternating between the main Love That Album shows, he's been doing a show covering compilation albums, which is not something I normally do on uh, the main program of uh, Love That Album. But uh, he's come up with some really fascinating choices. And uh, you know, basically he covers two albums per show. Half an hour, as I said, he's far more concise uh, than I am, but uh, still provides lots of fascinating information about the albums that he covers, history, his thoughts on the music. So I would urge you to uh, go into the catalogue of the show if you haven't already done so, and let's do uh, Eric's own uh, uh, programs of Love That Album, the compilation series, some really fantastic shows. I think there's about five now. So uh, I look forward to hearing where he goes next with that and also uh, future Album I Love segments. All right, so um, as I said earlier on, we're going to be covering uh, Stevie Wonder's album from 1976, Songs in the Key of Life. Let's get a little bit of background before I start talking about the album properly. Uh, So yes, as I said, the album came out in 1976 uh, on Motown Records. And it was probably, I guess, the last album out of that classic run of uh, the 1970s. The next album that came out out after that was a soundtrack album called uh, uh, The Secret Life of Plants, which had that one great single, uh, Send One Your Love. And then, you know, a couple of years later, I think, was um, Hotter Than July, uh, which I guess was never really an album that I was attracted to all that much. So in my way of thinking, everything from, say, music of my mind up until uh, Songs in the Key of Life is really part of that classic Stevie Wonder sound, uh, was recorded. Where was it recorded? Uh, The Record Plant in Hollywood, uh, The Record Plant in Sausalito, and The Hit Factory in New York City. He spent two years putting this album together, and we'll speak a little bit more about that uh, as the show goes on. So, um, originally when uh, my uh, guest for the show uh, was um, uh, going to come on, and he'd actually gone and suggested that we cover this album uh, over other Stevie Wonder efforts, and uh, in fact he even said, well, naturally, Songs in the Key of Life. Now, you know, given that Stevie had already gone and had uh, a very successful commercial and creative run 
uh, in the early 70s with, you know, that uh, run of albums, Music of My Mind, Talking Book, Inner Visions, uh, fulfilling this first finale uh, leading up to Songs in the Key of Life. Uh, yeah, they're all highly regarded. And I found it interesting that he would say Songs in the Key of Life naturally because um, all those other albums really could have qualified for a discussion on the show, particularly Inner Visions. I think that's often seen um, as a pinnacle in his career. And certainly my research uh, looking into um, what uh, other people had to say on the legacy of this album compared to its predecessors uh, all seem to sort of you know, rate this as really, really the highest point. Um, all the albums are well regarded, but there were such huge expectations of uh, Songs in the Key of Life. I guess these expectations were due to the high standard of its uh, predecessors and you know, a couple of the previous albums had won Best Album Grammys and the fact that uh, Stevie Wonder had worked something like, I don't know, 18 to 20 hour days for a year longer than the originally expected delivery date of 1975 to Motown. Now, nowadays, as we all know, when a major act delivers a new album every three years, that's seen as normal. But back in those days and, you know, earlier, it was common for, you know, two albums a year or at least one per year. And a two-year gap was really going to heighten the fans' curiosity. So after winning Best Album Grammys in 1973 and 1974, the year that he skipped was 1975. Here's an excerpt from Paul Simon, who won the Best uh, Album Grammy in 1975. And uh, most of all, I'd like to thank uh, Stevie Wonder, who didn't make an album this year. So. <laughs> you really have to wonder if Songs in the Key of Life had come out in the same year as Still Crazy after all these years, whether it would have been Paul Simon at the podium. I understand that this was album number 18 I had no idea. Now, we know about all those great albums, and we also know that, you know, during the 60s, Stevie had an incredible run of singles. I mean, any songwriter would have been proud to have had a run of songs like My Sharia Moore, Signed, Sealed, Delivered, Fingertips, Uptight, and For Once in My Life in uh, in their songwriting canon. Like a fool, I went and stayed too long. I'm wondering if your love's still strong. Generally, he wasn't exactly known for his albums of that period. I did a little bit of research, as you know, I tend to do for these shows, and I was really absolutely amazed that he'd come out with this long line of albums. Now, the impression I'm getting is that there were the hit singles and a whole lot of filler, which was a very common thing for a lot of artists throughout the 60s. So I'd be really interested in knowing uh, at what stage he gained that creative freedom to make all great stuff. I mean, I think you know, probably like all the other Motown artists, he uh, had to you know, work with uh, the house band, which is no bad thing because you know the Funk Brothers were renowned as uh, being you know, such a really, really great house band. But in the early 70s, where you know Stevie probably, I'm guessing he you know renewed or negotiated his contract with Motown, and he was given the creative control to uh, work with the musicians he wanted to work with or on some songs he's playing absolutely everything because he's one of these you know, multi-talented uh, instrumentalists. Despite all that, even with all the fella, just the fact that this, you know, Songs in the Key of Life is album number 18. Uh, I mean, so we're going back to Music of My Mind, that would have been album number, well, I don't know, 12 or 13 if I'm doing my arithmetic correctly. So, you know, 12 albums going up to that point. It's just absolutely phenomenal to, to think about because, you know, generally in the history of Stevie Wonder, most fans sort of only know his albums from early 1970s onwards. So basically, I found that you know, to sort of approach this show, to talk about Stevie Wonder's albums is somewhat daunting. He holds you know, a place in so many people's hearts. He's an iconic name. Uh, well, you know, as I said, at least up to anything, you know, inclusive of Hotter Than July, which, you know, as I said, is not my favourite of his albums, but, you know, still has enough really great stuff on it. Um, and, you know, like other people, I'd heard Stevie's stuff on the radio, singles and the like, but the first album I bought when it came out was called The Original Musicarium, Volume 1, and 
to the best of my knowledge, I don't think he's released uh, a follow-up. Uh, now, that was an anthology that came back out in 1982. And this is chock full of songwriting goodness uh, and even four brilliant new songs to boot. But this anthology, it only covered 70s material, so music of my mind uh, and onwards. Uh, like any good compilation should do, it led me to investigate you know, the albums proper. And truth be known, that compilation, more than the you know, broader compilations or albums proper, is the place I would have sent, uh, even nowadays, a Stevie Wonder newbie. There have been other compilations that have been doing the rounds, but for me, that one is just absolutely so perfect. And of course, as I said, you've got the four new songs, well, new for the day, that were really absolutely terrific and would have been had a worthy addition on any of his uh, you know, regular non-compilation type of albums. Uh, so my feelings about Songs in the Key of Life is that in some ways it is an advancement on what had come before, but in other ways it isn't. Before I justify that statement, let me say that what came before was just so great that just making an album of high quality songs without stylistic change would not have been a crime. I wouldn't even feel the need to say any of this except that it seems that so many articles praise songs in the key of life as if it's the second coming. So where I think it's consistent what's come before, uh, one, he had long divided his records into uh, lump-in-the-throat type piano ballads that never sounded anything less than sincere, uh, great pop-funk workouts, and songs of social conscience. Uh, songs in the key of life, subject matter, doesn't really, for the most part, digress too far from that template. Um, on his, and number two, on his early 70s albums, Stevie would have some tunes that would start out with you know the usual verse chorus structure then have maybe a three to four minute jam repetition of the main motif uh, towards the end and there's still a fair amount of this going on here too it's purely subjective i guess as to whether they work better in a shorter tighter format or in the jam type of uh, situation as i said before discussing an album like this can really be a little bit awkward. Uh, it's you know an album that's been revered for very good reason, and yet there are some songs which show to me that it's not without fault. It's hard for you know, someone, you know, just a guy with a computer and a microphone, 40 years down the track, uh, like me, who couldn't write a song to save his life. That's me once again um, to dispute what millions of others accept as a brilliant piece of work and make no mistake Stevie Wonder was justifiably called a musical genius for his gift of invention and his abilities as a singer a songwriter an arranger and a musician and I guess as shown throughout the recording of this album his persistence having said that there are moments on this album that for me don't always work but you know who am I to judge but I guess that's often the common accusation made of double studio albums and really this is effectively a five-sided album because of the seven inch bonus single that uh, came with the original package now according to the classic albums special that was made about songs in the key of life there are, i'm not sure if there's an extra 30 songs or there were 30 songs in total that were recorded for these sessions but either way there's a whole bunch of other tunes just sitting there in, in uh, the archives, which really makes these sessions all the more impressive. The 70s saw times changing, I guess, for a lot of artists through cultural change, technological changes, what the studio and instruments could deliver, and what fellow musicians were bringing to the table. Uh, the fact that Stevie Wonder's 70s albums were recorded with him either playing all the instruments or with a few other hand-picked players rather than the Funk Brothers, as I previously mentioned, gave Stevie, you know, obviously greater freedom with his sound. I'm embarrassed to say that it's only recently that I've gotten into uh, the brilliant music of Donny Hathaway, and he even sounded when he sang something like Stevie Wonder, so I'm not sure who was influencing who in that regard. If I ever leave you, baby, 
myself as well Is that any way for a man to carry on Do you think But I'd be interested to know whether uh, Stevie was soaking up the sounds of Donny Hathaway and for that matter you know other guys like Curtis Mayfield and the Four Tops who were still working in the 70s and Marvin Gaye who uh, really had also had a great run of albums uh, throughout the 70s and should probably be the subject of a future Love That Album. Or for that matter, I, I'm be even curious to know how much he was listening to other styles of music to soak up his influence into uh, you know, getting his own personal sound. Uh, there are differences, though, with this album. I know I've already gone and explored the similarities between uh, Songs in the Key of Life and the earlier ones. Uh, so, but yeah, there are some differences or maybe explorations into different things while still keeping his feet in familiar territory. Given the high quality of the material that, that is here, um, it's subjective to whether you prefer, you know, say, Sir Duke uh, on this album to, say, Living in the City, or I should say, Living for the City on uh, the Inner Visions album. Still, he had the luxury of exploring this time around because a he'd won previous best album grammys and could pretty much do whatever he wanted uh b barry gordy was paying him a lot of money to stay on motown i think during these sessions or just before these sessions they came to uh, a deal which was apparently something like 30 million dollars the highest amount paid to that point for an artist to uh stay or join a label uh and c it was a time when Artists, I think, in general, were encouraged to experiment. It wasn't necessarily uh, the cookie-cutter sound of uh, nowadays. Everyone's, you know, no one's willing to take risks, at least not in the mainstream. Uh, I'm sure that uh, you listeners out there will probably come forth with about a million different examples where mainstream artists nowadays are doing new and exciting things. And Bullio, please feel free to write to our kitchen at yahoo.com.au to uh, point out. Uh, my inaccuracies in that regard, but I'm going to go with that for the moment. So, where did he do something unusual on these albums? Well, side one tracks three and four to start off with. I don't think anyone would have predicted that Stevie Wonder would have arranged a song like Village Ghetto Land. Would you like to go with me Down my dead end street would you like to come with me to village ghetto land? See the people lock their doors while robbers laugh and steal. Beggars watch and eat their meals from garbage this song comes back to what I was talking about earlier on about Stevie's brilliance as an arranger as well as a composer and musician. Uh, this song could have been done as a slow funk number and it still would have been a great tune but the arrangement of a synthesized string section in the style of Bach gives the song a different emphasis or rather contrasts the lyrics which depict squalor with those who don't have a life of poverty. Uh, some of the lyrics are children play with rusted cars, sores cover their hands, politicians laugh and drink, drunk to all demands. The contrast between the you know, privileged European classical style with the picture Stevie is painting certainly pushes the point home for me. I think on a negative note, I think that despite his good intentions, the lyrics here and in some other places maybe are a little bit clunky as if Stevie's trying to you know, fit the uh, lyrics into the melody rather than you know, it being more naturalistic. Sometimes the overall effect of the song conveys more than an individual part. So lyrics that look forced on paper sound okay though with Stevie's delivery.
the other tune fairly early on in the album that shows that Stevie was doing some new things is uh, a, an instrumental called Contusion. Uh, and this is Stevie, I guess, going all jazz fusion on us, uh, it, sort of in a Al Dimiola sort of fashion. It's got, you know, time signature changes, uh, guitar lines typical of the genre, courtesy of uh, one Michael Cimbello. Yes, the one who uh, did that song Maniac from, uh, I think it was a Flashdance film. Contusion feels to me like it's it was something stylistically that Stevie felt that he had to do, just something that he wanted to conquer. It was the sound of the times, and he just wanted to show that he could do that as well. It, to me, it has no logical reason to appear on a Stevie Wonder record, just apart from that fact, to show that he could do anything musically that he wanted to. Uh, the thing to take into account once again is that this is Steve Lynn Morris's 18th album, and he... I don't even think he'd hit 27 years old yet. Even if there are moments on the album that don't always work, and really they're few and minor, his achievements on this album would have been enormous had he only been the singer or only the musician or only the songwriter. The fact that he was all these things plus a ranger just absolutely boggles the mind. And tunes like Contusion just really add to that amazement that at 27, or not even 27, he could do really whatever he wanted. There are three songs on this album that absolutely everybody knows. They're all positive and vibrant and upbeat, and they're ubiquitous on Golden Oldies Radio. Uh, two of those songs cover, I guess, the cycle of life or something that are very autobiographical for Stevie. Uh, and the first one of those two songs is I Wish. is a great song about Stevie fondly remembering childhood in a pretty vivid sort of manner and wishing he could revisit those days, although at the tender age of 27 and musically accomplishing all he ever wanted in life, I'm not really quite sure why. Um, this song has got one of the catchiest grooves going around with an incredible horn section and I come back to the whole thing about arrangement. The horn section, the horn punches are just absolutely brilliantly realized but i have two words primarily for why this song absolutely triumphs nathan watts he's the bass player on this album and the groove he gets along with the very aptly named drummer raymond pound is absolutely tight but loose um, and musicians know what that means but uh, really the little augmentations throughout the song is just what helps absolutely elevate the mood to something incredible. You get these woo, woo, woo effects. I'm, I'm not going to do that again ever on a podcast, but you know what I mean if you've heard the song, and I'm sure you have. But those augmentations become so much a part of the arrangement, and you really couldn't imagine the song being done any other way. This is certainly a song, though, where the lyrics actually do work, and despite my scratching at the head as to why he'd want to be walking down memory lane at 27, uh, he really does seem to capture the mood very, very well of someone recalling with fondness his, uh, his younger years without getting overly sentimental about it.
Isn't She Lovely is a song that you don't even need to be a Stevie Wonder fan to be familiar with. It's been played in so many situations and Australia's uh, great a cappella group, The Idea of North, do an absolutely marvellous arrangement of it. I urge you to go search it out on YouTube if you haven't heard it yet. I mentioned earlier on that this was one of two songs that were autobiographical and this one is, I guess this is well known about the birth of his daughter Aisha. Everybody knows this and it's hard to add much to talk about a song like this. Um, for me, I guess the things I like about it, you know, the chromatic harmonica in the middle and at the end make this a real song of joy. I mean, it's already a song of joy, but there's just something about uh, the way how Stevie plays his harmonica pretty much across any song that he does that really adds some element of uh, complete happiness about it. A piece of trivia, according to the classic album special on Songs in the Key of Life, the crying baby sounds that we hear in the song are not actually from Asia, only the bath baby sounds. Bet you uh, didn't know that you could live your life without learning that piece of information, huh? What makes this song work beyond the absolutely gorgeous melody and groove is the level of joy. I keep using that word Stevie sings with. He always sings like he's wearing his half on his sleeve. He's a very emotional singer. But in particular in this song, when he sings, I never thought through love would be making someone as lovely as she. You really believe it. This is not faked emotion like a lot of singers can do. Or it's, it's not even storyteller songwriting. It's just what he feels. And it really, really works. The other really well-known song from this album is Sir Duke, and it's really like a love letter to music and the power it can evoke on its listeners. Now, I know that sounds like a horribly cliched topic for a song, but fortunately, the music in this song itself is brilliantly played and arranged, and the lyrics are an honest tribute without ever getting mawkish. Uh, just um, think of the feeling you get when you hear that initial... Uh, a pattern on the hi-hat and the bass drum and that horn section, that brilliantly played arrangement just sort of kicks in. Uh, this song respects what music does in the now, but also name checks uh, the great pioneers of jazz that brought Stevie to where he was, like Count Basie and Duke Ellington. Their compositions and their big band arrangements gave jazz its vitality, and I think it's that spirit rather than their styles of playing that actually sort of influenced Stevie uh, on this song and his music in general. Um, once again, it's the sincerity of the tribute and the joy that the band and Stevie have in playing this song that have held it, I guess, in such high regard over the years. Uh, the horn section intro and outro are definitely inspired uh, musically by those giants, but Stevie has shown true genius in the composition and arrangement. It's got that great sense of funkiness, but it's it's laid it's not laid back, but it, it pulls back enough. It's tight, but but not restrictive tight, and that's really what I think appeals. Certainly, what appeals to me, and I think that's why it's held in such good stead over so many years. It hasn't um, it hasn't worn out its welcome, and I don't think it ever really will. It's a very exciting tune. Oh, 
coming back for a bit to the album's iconic status, I wonder whether it achieved that status because there were so many expectations of it. In the 70s, his albums, rather than his singles, which were in the 60s, had become essential to the public since he gained more independence production-wise and formed a sound different to that of the 60s Motown house band sound. This album is definitely a continuation of the vision that he'd set himself from the early 70s and yet because of you know, a couple of the tunes that I've mentioned earlier uh, we could see that he was extending himself on some fronts and you know the very nature of a double album is always going to be that you're going to want to have some sort of grander vision and because he took two years to record that you know, there were stories of him setting these incredible standards of production professionalism. I mean, you know, for mine, because I don't have audiophile ears, uh, I don't really necessarily see that it sounds production-wise uh, hugely better than the others, which is not to put any of those albums down. They still sound absolutely fantastic production-wise, but I don't see where there's been any sort of uh, difference in sound from those previous albums. Personally, Inner Visions is the album I enjoy the most, but the sonic palette that he's afforded himself through four album sides, or effectively five album sides, uh, the freedom that Barry Gordy gave him via $30 million contract renewal, and you know, two years to tweak this sound, uh, the songs and arrangements is what adds to the myth of this album. It's, you know, once again, it's not all perfect, but if they'd taken the very best of these songs and put out a single album, would it have been as iconic as it is? Maybe, but I don't know. I can't begin to think how you could speculate that. I know the same question is often asked about the Beatles' White Album. Uh, what songs would you take off to make one perfect album? Because it's often seen as a faulty but brilliant sprawling album. And the answer to that is, really, you couldn't take anything off. doesn't matter that songs like, you know, Rocky Raccoon or Revolution 9 aren't necessarily perfect Beatles songs, but they all make up this tapestry of this, you know, magnificent but flawed album. And the same thing here with uh, Songs in the Key of Life. It's, you know, th there are flaws with it. And I think mainly the songs that I have problems with are the ones on the uh, bonus single that come come with it maybe with one exception but uh you know really but you know still to even have the guts to go out and do a double album to have that much songwriting talent and that much arrangement vision speaks volumes about his artistic integrity and his love of his art Another side to the music on this album is the continuation of his piano balladry. As I said earlier, a Stevie Wonder album was typically funk workouts and those gorgeous ballads. I don't think it would be sacrilegious to say this, but I imagine that Stevie would have been influenced at some stage by the arrangement and composition style of Burt Bacharach. Uh, for years I thought I hated Burt Bacharach songs until I looked at an anthology of his, I think called Magic Moments and realized that I truly dug at least half the songs there. And to this day, I think I can still say I only dig half the songs. Some of them still seem a little bit too saccharine for my liking, but I still admire his arrangement style. Um, I'm pretty sure it'd also be pretty safe to say that Isaac Hayes would have been a uh, big fan of Burt Bacharach, and I think he might have even been quoted as saying such. The 
composition flow that Stevie was employing, the types of chords that he used, jazzy but not out and out jazz songs, and the structures sometimes going in unexpected directions, just pointed to uh, that Burt Bacharach comparison for me. One thing that's missing from the Burt Bacharach style is the muted trumpet, but that would have made it either a tribute or pastiche rather than his own adaptation. Uh, Stevie also likes to use on a fair number of his songs uh, the technique of modulation or key changes. Uh, and I know that some people say that it's either a lazy technique, but I've got to say I really disagree. There is an emotional high spot that's often being hit in these songs. It really adds to the sense of drama or whatever other emotion Stevie is trying to evoke. Uh, the obvious example of this here is a song called Summer Soft. starts off beautifully and gently it uses the changing of the seasons as a metaphor for the departure of lovers it builds up through the repetition of the chorus structure uh, at the end of summer or at the end of winter he sings you've been fooled by april and he's gone and he's gone winter's gone or you find it's october and she's gone and she's gone summer's gone of course that's all northern hemisphere stuff and you're all wrong about that it really should be the other way around but i digress um, each time he repeats the chorus the song changes key and this happens a number of times so it's obviously a stylistic decision in keeping with the song's drama uh, i don't think it would have been quite as effective a song staying in the same key the whole way through each time stevie starts a chorus he seems to get more intense this sort of leads to a point that I brought up a bit earlier on in the discussion, um, and that is about a lot of the songs on the album, and on some of the earlier ones too, is that they often run longer than they possibly need to. Uh, yet on some of these tunes, like Summer Soft, you think it's a, a good thing you know, that Stevie didn't sort of go via the adage of leave the audience wanting more. He just gave them more. Uh, most of this song is taken up with the chorus repetition and you sort of feel that you would have been cheated if he'd you know, faded early. Uh, you get so immersed in the intensity and the beauty of the song that you want to be satiated rather than shortchanged. However, in, in the case of songs like the opener on the album, Love's in Need of Love Today, Couldn't mean the world's disaster could change your joy and laughter to tears and pain. It's that love and need of love today. Don't delay. You don't really get a sense of escalating drama. It's not that sort of song. And I think that the last half of the song. It just goes on for a bit too long and it's really one song where a couple of minutes could have been left off at the end. A bit of brevity wouldn't have been a bad thing. Not the same sort of intensity as a song like Summer Soft. But, you know, who am I? I'm just a schmuck from Melbourne and Stevie Wonder is, you know, a multi, multi, multi million selling songwriter. So what do I know? Another of the piano ballads that gets really intense and has a modulation is the beautiful Knocks Me Off My Feet. And in some ways, it's a good cinematic prelude to Summer Soft. I see us in the park, strolling the summer days of imaginings in my head. And words from my heart, told only to the wind. 
mentioned before the Australian a cappella group the idea of North and their version of Isn't She Lovely from this album well they also do a great version of this song as well uh, which you should search out somewhere on the YouTubes um, in this song Stevie declares his undying love but it's unusually self-deprecating he sings I don't want to bore you with my troubles but there's something about your love that makes me weak and knocks me off my feet and as the song keeps going it goes away from that humility, but musically, it gets more and more intense. Uh, I'm undecided whether this is you know, just a humble declaration of love to someone he sees as a goddess, or the character is just a little bit scary. I'll stick with the former, as I think that this is you know, his classic songwriting style. When he sings, I love you repetitively, I do get swept away by the emotion that he evokes. His voice just shows great sense of dynamic. He knows where to pull back and where to bring up the drama in the between the verse and the chorus and how to make this grand declaration of love in the chorus uh, the melody just goes to some really beautiful unexpected places this is like old sense classic songwriting it could have been written maybe sometime in the 40s or the 50s and just played differently it's played here with uh, you know the 70s sense of soul but really this is a sort of song that could have been written in the, the grand age of torch songwriting at least that's what I feel and I really dig this one a lot I use the word gorgeous a lot but it really is a perfect description for this ballad for as long as Stevie's been around he's always written a great piano ballad that style has never really changed and yet of course he's had his uh, successes and he's had his failures and even though you know songs like this might sound schmaltzy to some once again, this really is classic balladry. Unlike a certain famous song that he did in the mid-1980s, which provoked this discussion in the film High Fidelity. Nice, Gary. Really, really nice. It was just top class. Rob, top five musical crimes perpetrated by Stevie Wonder in the 80s and 90s go. Sub-question, is it in fact unfair to criticize a formerly great artist for his latter-day sins is it better to burn out than to fade away that was from the scene in the film of course where the customer walks in and asks for a copy of i just called to say i love you i know that my very good friend davy mclemore is not necessarily a great fan of the image of the record store clerk in that film and what it conveys because none of that happens at cactus music but anyway it gives the rest of us some entertainment The other really big love song on this set is the song called As. Now, one thing I've got to say is that there are not many performers who would have taken uh, a jazz legend like Herbie Hancock onto their record and not given him a really prominent or obvious part. I mean, there's a little bit of a Fender Road solo here, 
but it's not really front and centre like you would expect someone like Herbie Hancock to be uh, doing. I mean, you know, he was obviously a pioneer in contemporary jazz, both in his own right and as a sideman for, you know, the classic Miles Davis band of the 60s. A lot of this was happening while Stevie was still little Stevie Wonder. But if you watch the documentary on the making of uh, Songs in the Key of Life, the uh, classic albums documentary I referred to earlier, Herbie still seems to have plenty of reverence for Stevie and his creativity. Uh, as is the big gospel-style song on the album, unlike the uh, song of the, the first side of the album, Have a Talk With God, which was a fairly low-key, minor-key groove, this is the song that just builds up and up into something really big with a full gospel choir. In the verses, we get the major key sort of gentle declarations of love that Stevie sings by himself. Uh, but by the time we get to the chorus, we get the minor key choir, huge declarations uh, of uh, when that love will stop, i.e. never. Uh, we get you know lines like, um, uh, until the day is night and the night becomes a day, always until the trees and seas just up and fly away until the day that eight by eight by eight is four until the day is the day that there are no more the thing is that in the circumstance this song could be heard as either a song of love for another person wife child parent or it could be a religious declaration of devotion to god something not really heard in pop singles nowadays but i think it was more common back then as the song builds up the choir feels more intense stevie adopts that back of the throat intensity for the final verse you know the sort of thing did i do that right um this is one of the few songs that could have ended in half the time but you're really glad that it doesn't There's a whole bunch of songs that I haven't even touched on yet, and I don't really think it's probably the place to be sort of like doing a song-by-song -song analysis like I used to do on the show, but suffice to say that there are so many joys that come up with this album every time I listen to it, and I know that there's a bunch of you out there who feel the same way. Uh, you know, there, you've got your political songs like um, uh, Black Man, which, despite its name, is really more about the melting pot of uh, humankind and all that we can achieve when we're not necessarily focused on uh, race or ethnicity. Uh, then there's a song, uh, If It's Magic, which you know, we were talking a little bit before about where Stevie decided to go to different places with this album. And this is a song that for some reason he decided he wanted to use a harp. And that's in both senses of the word, the traditional multi-string classical instrument, a harp rather than a piano. And then there's a brief spot for the chromatic harmonica. Uh, which we know is the harp in blues terminology, at the end of the song. Uh, there's plenty of really great tracks there, some really deep cuts. We've gone and just sort of covered a smattering of this, but overall, this is a song that, for very good reason, holds a strong pace, place, I should say, in a lot of people's hearts. Uh, so if you haven't yet had a chance to listen to this, if all you've ever listened to is the greatest hits albums, or maybe you're familiar with some of the other uh, albums from the early 70s and you haven't sort of caught on to this one yet, then go buy it, CD, vinyl, 8-track uh, cartridge, whatever it is that you can get your hands on. Oh yeah, or iTunes download, you know, whichever method. Uh, but really, this is just great song craftsmanship. Uh, great arrangements, some incredible grooves on these songs, just awesome playing, uh, an incredible lineup of musicianship. And that documentary I was talking about before, the classic albums doco on Songs in the Key of Life, is available on YouTube. So I'd urge you to see that out and supplement your listening of this album with the thoughts of the musicians who got back together many years later to talk about those times. It's just really it's well worth listening not necessarily the best documentary that you'll ever see on the making of an album but there's a lot in it that i found uh, really enlightening 
So on that note, I think I'll uh, finish off my discussion or my talk or whatever you want to call it about Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. Go out and search it out if you haven't done so yet. I'll be back in a couple of minutes to close off the show and talk about what's going to be happening on uh, the next episode of Love That Album. Podcasts last over three hours. You have no concepts of time! Balaban Studios presents. A stinking pause. Take your stinking pause off me, you damn dirty ape! Starring Scotland. Yeah, be prepared for me to have a little bit to say about that one. And Charles. If Leslie Grantham can do it, then so can we. <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> if you like westerns, comedies, foreign films, horror movies, action adventure, and classic cinema, well, we don't have much of that, but if you like ass, titties, farting, burping, puffy nipples, poop, taboo porn, muffin tops, comic books, wrestling, mustaches, pie smashed on butts, cheese, taking baths, butt sex, gagging, milk, and the American flag, check out the Silva and Gold podcast. We're the morons your mom warned you about while she was sitting on your face. Silva and Gold. We talk about movies and shit. Find us on iTunes or silverandgold.com. And so we arrive at the end of episode 63 of Love That Album. I hope that you've enjoyed it. As I said at the start of the show, doing the solo thing is really not my preferred method of doing it, but I really wanted to get this Stevie Wonder show out and to you. So this was the only way that I could get it done. Anyway, uh, onwards and outwards, I say. Uh, episode 64, which will be available next month, has actually already been recorded. It's been a strange series of events, but I won't bore you with that. Suffice to say that uh, the show will be featuring uh, Mr. Davey McLemore, super employee extraordinaire at Cactus Music in Houston, Texas. Sounds like an absolutely ripper record shop to be able to attend, and um, I hope that uh, my travels will leave me there one day. But thank goodness for Skype, which allows me to be able to have the uh, the privilege of being able to shoot shit with Mr. Davey McLemore. And this time round, we're going to be discussing... Uh, an album that came out at the beginning of this year from a performer named Robert Ellis. He's a uh, Texan troubadour. I keep using that expression all throughout the show. I'm not quite sure why, but there you go. Uh, he has a terrific album called The Lights from the Chemical Plant. It's his third album, and after having done a couple of albums of more straight country-oriented stuff, he's gone a bit more down the singer-songwriter route. Certainly there's country influences on the album, but you'll hear what we have to say on that episode of uh, Love That Album, number 64, which will be put online sometime, I guess, mid-August. All right. Thanks once again for having joined the show. Please be nice to each other. Listen to some great music. Read some great books. Watch some fantastic movies. And we'll um, speak to you in a month on Love That Album. And actually, in two weeks, you'll uh, be able to hear the next episode in the compilation series of Love That Album, hosted by Eric Reanimator. Please support that. All right. Speak to you soon. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Points.